This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Western civilization must push back Vladimir Putin's Stalinist Ukrainian land grab. When Russia attacked the Ukraine on February 24, 2022, there was a widespread consensus that the United States would assist the beleaguered nation. Much of that consensus has dissolved. Today, there is a good deal of controversy concerning the United States' role in the war in the Ukraine. That controversy is unusual in that it cuts across normal party ideological lines. You can find conservatives and liberals on both sides. The same can be said for Republicans and Democrats. This episode of the Return to Order Moment attempts to clarify that controversy and spell out some of the essential elements of that struggle. We begin with an essay by John Horvat titled, Eight Facts About Russia and Its Ukrainian War. Regardless of how you look at the war in Ukraine, certain facts contradict the present media narrative of a struggle between liberal globalism and a theocratic regime. Several of these facts were especially evident in President Putin's first anniversary speech to the Federation Assembly about the war and the nation's future. Others can be gleaned from the news. These facts are 1. The Putin game plan follows Alexander Duggan's fourth political theory against globalism. Inside this theory, the different peoples create civilizations, forming large civilizational spaces and blocks. The ideologue believes that smaller nation-states enjoy the semblance of sovereignty under the umbrella of, quote, politically organized, militarily capable civilizational centers that represent the poles of a multipolar world, unquote. Translation, Ukraine has no right to be a free, independent, and sovereign nation. 2. The war in Ukraine seeks to force the unwilling Ukrainian nation under this umbrella. The conflict has triggered irrevocable political and economic ruptures with the globalized world that facilitate the formation of a multipolar world. 3. Until 2022, Russia was wholeheartedly a part of this globalist society it now claims to hate. Its economy was fully integrated into the global network. Its products, especially oil, natural gas, and grain, were sold in world commodity markets delineated in dollars. Before the abrupt change of events, its cities welcomed the multinational retailers found all over its vast territory. The wave after wave of sanctions testify to the huge extent of this integration and the difficulty of entanglement. 4. Russia, unfortunately, shares in the moral decadence of the modern world. The state of its decay is comparable to Western countries. The nation suffers from the world's highest abortion rate, low birth rates, low church attendance, and a decline of marriage. Contrary to the media reports of a theocracy, President Putin has no objections to an LGBTQ plus presence in Russia, save for children. In his February 21st speech, 
He made a special point to say, quote, Adult people can do as they please. We in Russia have always seen it that way and always will. No one is going to intrude into other people's private lives, and we are not going to do it either. Unquote. Five. Both Russia and the West are the fruit of modernity. The two systems share philosophical roots dating back to the French Revolution. The West adopted the soft liberal model now in the process of decay. Russia now follows the hardline Nietzschean nationalist model, heavily influenced by German thinkers like Martin Heidegger. Both sides are also influenced by the harmful effects of existentialist and postmodern thinkers. 6. Both systems put great faith in the power of the state. Western political establishments have long promoted massive programs, regulations, and networks. Putin's speech primarily outlined a mountain of government programs and initiatives costing trillions of rubles to address the needs of citizens in a state-driven society. 7. True to their modern origins, both systems are secular in their expression. Liberalism, by its nature, has always falsely claimed to be neutral in matters of religion. However, Putin's nearly 40-page major speech surprisingly does not mention the Christian God and addresses no religious themes that might be expected in these times of trial. These seven facts illustrate that the media proposal is flawed. The real fight is not between a decadent, ultra-liberalized, globalized world and a theocratic, autocratic East. The conflict involves an entire world that is morally rotten, philosophically flawed, financially compromised, and politically disordered. Both systems represent two sides of the same debased coin of modernity. On one side are those who defend the post-war order with all its errors. On the other side is the Russia-China-Iran axis that wants to break that order and establish its enigmatic, multipolar, anti-Western world. Ukraine is the unwilling stage for the drama to destroy the post-war order and trigger the next and worse phase of a revolutionary process hell-bent on the destruction of what remains of the Christian West. Suffice it to say, the Ukrainian invasion did not go according to plan. The unexpected Ukrainian defense of its sovereignty upset the narrative. This gives rise to an eighth fact, which must be considered to evaluate the two causes. 8. Humanity has not heeded the message of Fatima. In 1917, our Lady in Fatima, Portugal, warned the world of the need for prayer, specifically the rosary, penance, and amendment of life to escape divine chastisement. If Russia were consecrated to her, Our Lady promised it would convert to the faith.
Thus, those looking for political solutions inside the two secular frameworks will be disappointed. The fundamental reform that is needed is a moral one. The ultimate solution will be a supernatural one. However, modern people refuse to consider the supernatural or the moral. The solution to the world's problems must come through Fatima, while the West ignored the appeal, preserving in its decadence, Tiny devout pockets of Catholics in the West and the Ukraine still exist who take Fatima seriously. However, Russia and its allies China and Iran deny Fatima the rosary or even the need for this conversion. At this point, the outcome is unclear. So much can happen should war's suffering change the hearts of individuals and turn them toward God. Our Lady's plan is superior to those of men. Victory will come to those who obey her heavenly request, not the flawed designs of men. One of the vexing factors of the war in Ukraine is the role of China. The CCP pretends to be a force for peace, while establishing an ever more cordial relationship with Vladimir Putin. Mr. Julio Laredo explores China's motivations and actions in his essay, Will the West Let Itself Be Squeezed Between Russia and China? Entering a new year, many news commentators customarily do a retrospective analysis of the past year as a means for proposing possible scenarios for the upcoming one. This is an increasingly difficult task, as events become more chaotic and unpredictable. Today, we cannot speak of political processes with an internal logic that allows us to delineate causes and possible developments. We should rather speak of political phenomena that cannot always be fully explained and thus analyzed with coherent criteria. This difficulty is partly due to the diminishing of the lumen rationis, or the light of reason. Indeed, we see the introduction of weak thought, a way of thinking not based on rational certainties and moral principles, but whims, impressions, and trends. Adding to the problem is the crumbling of social structures, beginning with the family, which cancels the customary points of reference. Analysts have remarked that this decadence has reduced public opinion into public temperament. A good example of weak thought is the success of so many so-called influencers that flood social media. Their utterly banal posts are deprived of any intellectual content, yet get millions of likes and also millions of dollars. When influencers can have more weight than thinkers and politicians, it is a sign that the world has lost its bearings. All this said, I think we can nonetheless discern some dominating trends. I will concentrate on the shifting geopolitical situation. For most of the 20th century, we were used to a bipolar vision of the world. Two superpowers competed for world hegemony, the United States and the Soviet Union. 
each had its own geopolitical strategy. In reality, only one superpower, the United States, existed since the USSR was what Empress Catherine the Great sarcastically derided as a Potemkin village. That is, a pompous facade with nothing behind it. The fall of the Soviet Empire ended this vision. Analysts then spoke of a multipolar world, no longer dominated by two superpowers, but rather a range of rotating regional powers. History is beginning to disprove this vision. Indeed, the United States still maintains its superpower status, albeit with a waning conviction and thus diminishing vigor. However, two other countries are emerging as significant players. They do not actually compete for world hegemony, but divide the task as a sort of joint effort. These players are the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation. From my European perspective, the most immediate threat is Russia. However, China is the long-term danger for everyone. The debacle of the Gorbachev-Yeltsin governments immediately after the Soviet fall reduced Russia to shambles, with groups of oligarchs vying for a share of the cake. Afterward, Vladimir Putin managed to restore centralized power to the government. Indeed, biographers are now recalling how this KGB colonel foresaw the downfall of the USSR and maneuvered accordingly in the 90s. Aided by KGB cronies and friendly oligarchs, he has managed to gain control of the country. In an interview with me in 2003, noted Russian dissident Vladimir Bukovsky warned, quote, Putin is trying to recompose the power of the Kremlin. He is going back in history. There is even talk of reconstituting the Soviet Union in some form. I've been to Russia several times and know the country firsthand. Russians do not have a liberal democratic mentality. They love authority. They appreciate a strong hand at the helm. This was the secret of the Tsar's power as, quote, autocrat of all the Russias. When the Bolsheviks stormed the Winter Palace in Petrograd, they did not destroy it as the French revolutionaries of 1789 did with the royal palaces they took over in Paris. Instead, the Bolsheviks turned the Winter Palace into a museum, the Hermitage. They stepped into the Tsar's shoes. With utter ruthlessness, Stalin understood this mentality and governed as a real autocrat of old times. Thus, he invoked the religious faith of the people and rallied national patriotism to fight World War II, which Russians call the Great Patriotic War, a reference also to the resistance against the French invasion in 1812. In Russia, power is sacred. Holy Russia is, ipso facto, holy. When a leader takes national glory to an apogee, 
he becomes especially holy. Little wonder that Russian churches are full of icons, depicting not only the czars, but also Stalin with saintly halos. Putin is heir to this tradition. He has surrounded himself with the grand trappings of imperial power. He has favored the cult to the Romanov family and praised the Stalinist period as one of great glory for Russia. He has cunningly revived the people's longing for the great motherland. For protection against possible invasions, this motherland must be surrounded by client states, Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and others. The Nazis called such buffers Lebensraum, the vital space. Putin has also resumed Russian expansionism. He carries out heavy-handed intervention in the Middle East. He supports left-wing governments in Latin America to keep the pressure on the United States' backyard. Facing the Russian Federation, Europe is in submissive mode. We saw this compliance in 2008, when Russia militarily took two provinces from Georgia. We saw it in 2014, when the Russians invaded Crimea, simultaneously fomenting the creation of the puppet republics of Donetsk and Lugansk. Apart from the few pro-forma protests and so-called sanctions that were immediately softened, Europe did nothing to defend these countries that wanted to remain independent and linked to the West. A sufficient reason for this shameful compliance is the supply of Russian natural gas. Like it or not, the fate of Europe, especially during the winter, is in the Kremlin's hands. As much as 47% of the European Union's gas needs to come from Russia. This dependence will further grow when the Nord Stream 2 pipeline becomes operational. As mentioned, Russia has always been a Potemkin village to a certain point. The nation can pound the table as much as it wants, but its real power is far less intimidating. Our long-term threat is China. The Chinese have a very high regard for themselves and their country and a not-so-secret dream of world domination. A high-ranking foreign officer once told me, China has a Bismarckian policy, that is, an imperial one. A fundamental difference between China and Russia is that China can count on almost limitless financial resources, which the West, in a textbook case of short-sightedness and naivete, provides. Besides direct penetration into Europe and its markets, there are at least four areas of concern regarding China from my European perspective. One is the problem of Taiwan. Beijing does not accept the Republic of China on Taiwan and reacts ruthlessly to any diplomatic recognition. Last November, Lithuania opened a representative bureau in Taipei, Taiwan's capital. The very next day, Beijing threatened that, quote, Vilnius will pay the full consequences for this act, unquote. 
the Chinese imposed harsh economic sanctions against this Baltic country. Europe, however, is a unified commercial bloc to the point that what touches one member affects all the others. Will the European Union retaliate by imposing, in turn, economic sanctions on China? Or will it let a member state be bullied with impunity? In this latter case, it would officially acknowledge that the European Union does not exist. The second point of concern regards the Balkans. Silently, almost secretively, Beijing has penetrated into this highly explosive region, establishing itself as an important player. Many wars have started here. If the European Union does not take care, it may find itself with a Chinese bridgehead at the gates of Europe. Yet another area of concern is the Russian natural gas supply. Europe's dependence on Russian gas could be attenuated by importing it from the United States, which has plenty. However, much of America's gas goes to China. It's a problem of markets, they say. The Chinese pay more for it. It's a problem of brains, I answer. We should sell to our friends and allies, not our potential enemies. However, this simple logic seems to be beyond the mental capacity of not a few leaders. A final area of concern would merit an entire article. On July 14, 2021, the European Commission issued new environmental proposals known as Fit for 55, or the Green Package. It intends to reduce the so-called greenhouse gas emissions by 55% to achieve climate neutrality by 2050. Fit for 55 will penalize the European economy. Over the years, the European economy has been losing competitiveness vis-à-vis -vis communist China, which practically doesn't apply any environmental regulation. Take, for example, the migration to electric cars. China controls 51% of the global total of chemical lithium, 62% of chemical cobalt, and 100% of spherical graphite, the major components of lithium-ion batteries. A wholesale migration to electric cars would hand over Europe's economy to communist China. I close with a rhetorical question. Is all this supply simply due to a free market logic that privileges low prices? Or can we discern a strategy, a plan, or a plot? As mentioned earlier, Vladimir Putin is very much like previous Russian and Soviet leaders. That also extends to his mistakes. In his essay, Mr. Edwin Benson describes the errors of Russia. In July of 1917, Our Lady told the three visionaries at Fatima that Russia would, quote, spread her errors throughout the world. The Soviet Union spent 74 years doing just that. Many hoped that this spread would end when the Soviet Union dissolved the day after Christmas 1991. 
early indications were indeed promising. The old Soviet archives were open to scholars around the world. Many of the documents therein confirmed many anti-communist suspicions. Vladimir Putin appears to be intent on reviving those errors. Of course, he does not consider them errors. To him, it is a correction of the historical record. In a March 2018 interview, Mr. Putin was asked what events in his nation's history he would like to change. His simple response was, the collapse of the Soviet Union. 58% of Russians polled in 2017 agreed. Only 26% disagreed. Specifically, Vladimir Putin is reviving adulation of Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. The process of diminishing Stalin's reputation began even before the fall of the Soviet Union. It began about three years after the dictator's death in 1953. His successor, Nikita Khrushchev, began de-Stalinization with a speech to the 20th Communist Party Conference in February 1956. This was not the end of communism, argued Mr. Khrushchev, but only the end of Stalin's misuse of it to create a cult of personality around himself. That cult went far beyond the ubiquitous posters and larger-than-life statues that Stalin sprinkled liberally throughout the USSR. It also included mass deportations to Siberia and the torture and execution of anyone that Stalin saw as a threat, including many dedicated party members. At the time, there were rumors that Nikita Khrushchev himself was on a list of those who would be removed in this way, and that only Stalin's death had prevented it. The Stalin statues were removed and the posters painted over. Stalingrad, the site of one of the most important and longest battles of World War II, was renamed Volgograd. Stalin's body was removed from Lenin's tomb and reburied in a simply marked grave. Billions of Soviet citizens, sensing that the wind had changed directions, removed framed photos of the dictator from their homes. The opening of the Soviet archives revealed something of the extent of the evil unleashed by Stalin. Even today, though, the estimates vary wildly, from 3 million to 60 million deaths. Most reliable estimates place the number as being somewhere between 20 to 30 million, eclipsing Hitler's 12 million and exceeded only by Mao Zedong's 40 million. Of course, all such numbers are highly speculative. There is evidence that Stalin is once again popular in Russia. In June 2017, the Washington Post reported that a nationwide poll taken in Russia indicated that, quote, more Russians consider Joseph Stalin the most outstanding person in world history than any other leader. Tied for second in the same survey is the man who has done more than anyone to restore the notorious Soviet dictator's reputation, Russian President Vladimir Putin.
Foreign policy also picked up on the pro-Stalin trend. In 2016, it reported that, quote, In 2015, the Soviet dictator's resurrected cult of personality reached new heights. Over the past few years, President Vladimir Putin has presided over the rehabilitation of one of the 20th century's greatest monsters. Bedeviled by the country's economic decay and fearful of dissent, he has turned to the ghost of Stalin to help rally the Russian people and to prepare them for the sacrifices that lie ahead. With Stalin's record as one of the great evildoers of all history, many do not understand why there is a movement to restore his image. There are still Russians who remember Stalin's evils, but they are beginning to encounter official resistance, as reported in the New York Post in November 2018. Quote, The returning the names ceremony is about the past, refusing to forget the state's murder of more than one million Russians in 1937 and 1938. The Human Rights Group Memorial has led the event since 2006 at the stone memorializing Stalin's gulag labor camps. Putin, a big Stalin fan, doesn't like that. Only a public outcry stopped his minions from forcing the ceremony to move across town to the Wall of Grief that Putin erected in 2015. At the core of Stalin's newfound popularity is Russian nationalism. The USSR was a collection of many cultures across the Asian continent and possessed a good bit of Europe besides. Much of the pro-Stalin sentiment is based on the Soviet role in World War II. Ever since, tales of the exploits of great Soviet soldiers have been just as popular as such stories are in the United States. After World War II, the USSR was able to control the nations of Eastern Europe. Russia, however, was always the center. The strings of the Soviet Empire were pulled in Moscow. When the Soviets launched Sputnik, the world held its breath. Today, Russia is weak. The other republics of the USSR are, for the most part, independent nations. Some of those nations lean more toward the enemies of the former Soviet Empire. Russia's economy is a shambles, relying on oil exports to function at all. The price of oil is kept low by Russia's competitors, a sign of the power of the U.S. Many Russians long for a rebirth of national greatness, and Stalin is the leader about whom they are the most nostalgic. Vladimir Putin's 2014 occupation of Crimea reminds many Russians of Stalin's sense of purpose. The sense of nostalgia is heightened by the fact that there are relatively few in Russia who remember the repressions of Stalin and the fear that came along with it. The survivors of the gulags are now elderly and soon will all be gone. Paul R. Gregory of the Hoover Institution points out a sobering trend, quote, A decade ago, Almost 70% agreed that Stalin was a brutal tyrant guilty of exterminating millions of innocent people. 
a conclusion disputed by only one in five. In 2018, 44% disagreed with the brutal tyrant depiction of Stalin. The rest disagree or have no opinion, unquote. Mr. Gregory also points out that the attitude of many Russians is that Stalin was, quote, harsh but fair, unquote. The revival of Stalin's reputation threatens to return that benighted land to the errors that Our Lady warned the world about in 1917. The revival of Stalin's memory, happening at the same time that worldwide socialism appears to be growing, should concern all who prize our divinely instituted humanity and free will. This concludes... Western civilization must push back Vladimir Putin's Stalinist Ukrainian land grab. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our programs in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.